the values of humanism are found in many ways in many traditional religions. The Strength of Self, James Croft and the Ethical Society of St. Louis. So for humanists, this has always been the case that support of science and scientific institutions is not just academic. For us, it's a reflection of our core commitment to understanding the universe in which we live. But I think now we can see that it's literally life or death, that it makes the difference, the scientific analyses of the spread of the virus and whether we can develop a vaccine, etc. They will make the difference between the life or death of many, many people. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Houses of worship everywhere are adapting to the demands of the pandemic. Keeping congregants feeling tied to their faith, themselves and each other, has been a challenge felt by all. But what if faith is not at the center of the congregation? How are our humanist, atheist and agnostic friends handling isolation? James Croft is clergy at the Ethical Society of St. Louis. He spoke with Beliefs producer Jay Woodward. Mr. James Croft, welcome to Beliefs. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about your organization. I know that you are the Ethical Society of St. Louis and you exist under the broader umbrella of the American Ethical Union. Can you break down your congregation and how it relates to the larger one real quick for our guests? I'm sorry, for our listeners? Of course, yes. All our listeners are guests, really. They're guests in our respective homes while we're recording this from isolation. So I'm one of the clergy at the Ethical Society of St. Louis. The Ethical Society of St. Louis is a humanist congregation. And so what we do is we replicate many of the functions of a traditional religious congregation, like community meetings on Sundays, social events, activism, service opportunities, etc. But we do all that without reference to God or traditional religion. Right out of the gate, I want to ask you, what is the question that you get asked most when people are trying to get their head around a religion that's not a religion? How can you have a church without God? <laughs> people ask that question all the time. <laughs> I get asked a lot of questions because our congregation is unusual in that we don't teach adherence to any particular religious creed or set of metaphysical beliefs, and most of our members are atheists, agnostics, skeptics, humanists, and many people can't seem to wrap their heads around how you can even have a congregation which doesn't have that central belief in a deity. And what I explain to people is that from our perspective, religious congregations are human-created phenomena to fulfill human needs. We all have need for community, to answer great existential questions of life, like why are we here? What's the meaning of our lives? What happens after we die? How can we be of service to each other? We want to be the best versions of ourselves. And those desires don't go away just because someone is not religious. And our community exists to help people grapple with those questions together with each other in a community space. And so I think it's a very readily understandable idea, but I do get the question a lot, how can you have a church without God? That just breaks down the idea of what does the word congregation mean, right? It certainly include 
people getting together to discuss some of the greater existential questions without necessarily having to frame it in terms of the divine, right? Yes, exactly. I think of a congregation as a sort of social institution that provides certain benefits for people, and it doesn't have to be attached to a specific religion. I mean, if you think about it, Jewish congregations are really quite different to Christian congregations, and indeed, Christian congregations of different flavors of Christianity are very different from each other, and they have very different beliefs often, and yet no one is confused as to how you can have a Catholic church on the one hand and a Jewish synagogue on the other, everyone understands that you don't have to have the same set of values or beliefs at the heart of a congregation. Congregations can be organized differently in order to promote different sets of values. And that's exactly the same with humanist congregations like ethical societies. We do many of the same things that traditional religious congregations do, but we just orient it around humanistic values rather than around traditionally religious ones. There was a guest that we had at one point that said something that always stuck with me. There is a general human tendency to feel as though we are accompanied somehow. And the word accompanied is the one that stood out for me as really describing a relationship with the divine. How do you interact with it when when those ideas do come up? We tend not to use the term divine specifically. That particular word is one that I personally would avoid because the connotations it has for many people is specifically deistic. It's about relationship with God very often, though I understand not always. But I think the same sorts of questions do arise within our congregation and within our broader movement. So just to be super clear, we don't talk about not believing in God a lot at the Ethical Society of St. Louis. We we don't focus our programs or our community around what we don't believe in. And indeed, we are a non-creedal community. So people can believe what they like about God and still be a member of our community. We just focus our attention on this life and how we can be our best selves moving through this life we know that we have without worrying too much about any other life we might have in the future. And so we are not a atheistic congregation in the sense that we dogmatically assert there is no God and focus our our programs around that belief. At the same time, I think that many of our members, and it's difficult to speak, every religious congregation is diverse. That's particularly true of members of ethical societies who have lots of different types of beliefs. So whenever I'm speaking in general, I appreciate that I'm always mischaracterizing some of my members' views. But I don't know that many of us would speak in terms of a feeling of being accompanied And one thing that separates humanism from traditional religious worldviews very often is that we don't have a sense that the universe itself has a direction, a purpose, or certainly a personality. We think that those are things that people have or people can find within the lives that we live, but we don't ascribe those characteristics to the universe as a whole. So I think that if there is something that takes the place of what might be called the divine in other traditions, it would be our highest values, right? What we gather together around, what we strive towards 
are the set of values that form the pillar of our community, that in some ethical societies there's an inscription above the stage in the auditorium that reads, the place where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground. And so our sense of holiness, and another word we don't often use, but if it does exist within our tradition, would be the highest values of humanity. But we don't personify them and we don't give them human characteristics. Does that make sense? What an excellent education. I, I so, so deeply appreciate um, you taking us back to a non-religion normative vocabulary to talk about this. And um, forgive me for, for bringing the divine to a non-divine conversation. It makes me realize that in so many ways... Many religions define themselves by what they don't believe, but I certainly take your meaning that the divine has a very, um, very specific, very religion normative implication. Um, and it's interesting, as you said, that um, that there is some ways that that it does still sneak into the conversation on your end as well. That there is a a church and there is a thing that is holy. Um, I really like. Your distinction for your congregation is a place where shared values and ethics become central. And I'm curious as to what those are for for our listeners that are not um, perhaps educated on on humanistic values on 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 the ethical society's central tenets. And I know it's horrible to, to ask, but I don't suppose you could um, take us for a, a small tour of those. Oh, absolutely. It's not horrible to ask at all. It's actually a really important question because if our community comes together around a set of core values, if that's really the tent pole that's holding up the entire enterprise and characterizes us as a community, then it's very important to be able to articulate what those values are. <laughs> and I think the best way our community has found to do it is in a series of 11 principles that we teach our children. So these are the core values of our Sunday school, effectively our Sunday ethical education for kids program. And I won't read all 11 of them out because there's a ton of them, but they start with every person is important and unique, which is a reflection of the core concern of humanism, which is the dignity and worth of every person. And then they go through things like every person deserves to be treated fairly and kindly. I can learn from everyone. And then a couple which are particularly important and somewhat distinctive compared to some traditional religious communities. I am free to question. I'm free to choose what I believe. And then the two that end the list are I accept responsibility for my choices and actions. I strive to live my values. And something that I love about this list is firstly that it starts with the most important thing for humanists, which is that all people have worth and should be treated with dignity. And it's our responsibility to create a world which reflects that. So that's the sort of moral commitment of humanism. It also includes what we might call the epistemic commitment of humanism, our freedom to question and to choose our own beliefs, not irresponsibly choose whatever we want to believe, but to use evidence and reason to come to our beliefs rather than being given them by fiat from a teacher or a book. We reject uh, truths that are simply handed down. We want to test them with evidence and reasons. 
And then finally, what you might call the sort of ethical commitment of humanism, which is the responsibility of individuals to make the world better and that it's our choices and actions and our attempts to live up to our values which will create the world that we want or not. It does seem as though that the these tenets that you're talking about, these 11 principles, they don't stand actually in opposition to religion either, do they? No, not at all. And just to be super clear, the terminology around ethical studies is really confusing. But we are a religion. We recognize the religion by the Supreme Court oh, and by the... Now I'm just it, digging myself holes again. No, you're not, because <laughs> it, it's very, very complex, because even our founder, who was the son of a rabbi and was trying to come up with what he thought of as this new religion that wasn't attached to a creed. He understood that even in his time back in the late 1800s, people would prefer not to think of it as a religion, some people. So he said that ethical culture is religious to those who are religiously minded and merely a philosophy to those who are not. So even right from the start, we've had this strange dual thing where I actually asked my community once in one of my Sunday morning talks, to close their eyes and then everyone who thought of ethical culture as their religion raised their hands and then everyone who thought of it as not their religion and who thought of themselves as not religious to raise their hands and it was almost an exactly 50-50 split. So it's a tension within our own community as to what language to use. But you're absolutely correct to say that the values of humanism are found in many ways in many traditional religions and are frequently not in tension with them. I work very closely with clergy of all religious traditions to do all sorts of shared work in the St. Louis area. So we've worked with well, I couldn't I could just list off literally basically every religious tradition we have in the city. We are represented on the interfaith partnership of greater st louis's cabinet and we work alongside all sorts of different clergy of different religious traditions to do all sorts of social justice and service work and we find huge wells of shared values we are not antagonistic as a community to traditional religious worldviews where there might be some conflict is when some elements of the teachings or practices of traditional religions come into conflict with some of our core values. So if, for instance, they want to indoctrinate their kids and not allow their kids to make a free choice as to what to believe for themselves, well, we have a problem with that. Or if they don't think that same-sex couples should be allowed to get married, we think that conflicts with our commitment to the equal worth and dignity of every person. So we have a problem with that particular belief. But it's not a wholesale opposition to religion or even particular traditions as a whole. It is simply a disagreement over values and how they play out in our actions. It seems, and please forgive me, because I don't want any part of this conversation to feel as though it is a, it is a, it is a testing of a thesis, if you understand my meaning. Um, but one of the things that brought our conversation to brought us together today to have a conversation is um, looking at the ways that different traditions, faith traditions, uh, religious philosophical, uh, religio philosophical. Oh man, I'm trying to come up with a great word. Um, help me out with that. What would you call? 
I think religio-philosophical is a great word, but then I love long, complicated, hyphenated words like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a sucker for them myself. So um, we were talking about what all of the stories that we've been seeing in the news about how faith communities, uh, and that is a shorthand, I will acknowledge, how faith communities are working to adapt their liturgies, uh, their rituals, the things that bring them together in order to adapt to a pandemic. And that brings very real challenges to congregants, um, to people who find their their principal solace in in coming together which is a very, very fundamental human need. And uh, you and I discovered in our conversation about what we would talk about that there is um, there is a little bit of a, a step that you have to take for the ethical society that when Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Jains, Hindus, they go home, they can't go to their gurdwaras or mosques, but they do go home and they have they have God in the end to sit with, and you pointed out that that is the greatest distinction between your congregants and congregants in other traditions, is that the congregation is so primal in your relationship to each other and your relationship to what you believe that it makes it that much more difficult to know what to do next. Do I have that about right? I think you do. I think that Something that does distinguish humanistic philosophies from traditional religious ones very often is that humanists don't tend to have a teleological view of the universe. We don't think that there is design or agency behind the universe that's driving it towards a particular end or destination. And we don't tend to believe as is a promise of some traditional religions, at least, that somehow everything is going to work out well, or that at least there's a universal overseer who cares about us and wants what's good for us. And if you add on to that the fact that most humanists don't tend to believe in the afterlife, so that those who we lose either to this virus or like some of the members of my community who've had family members die for other reasons during this time of isolation, we tend to believe that they're gone for good, that we mm. will not see them again. We will not have another opportunity to be reunited with them. And so I think those factors can add up to times like this when people are physically isolated, the vast majority of secular modes of gathering have closed down. So you can't go to brunch with your friends, you can't go to the movies, you can't go to the gym, no sports leagues or musicals to watch. And so the only community building organisations that are still offering communal programming often are religious congregations. And so many non-religious people who aren't a member of a congregation are out of luck. They have literally nothing to turn to. And for our members who can expect us at least to continue some programming, which we have done, I mean, we are almost more busy with programming now than before mm. this happened. It's a stunning array of things going on every single week. But there is, I think, a special 
I hate using the word theological for this because it just doesn't feel quite right, but I think your listeners will understand if I say there's a theological challenge in that I'm not just trying to keep the community together and help people feel a connection to each other, but also trying, like I know a lot of clergy are, to craft a narrative that says something about how our humanist values can guide us through this. And that's really tough when you can't say, God has this, you know, God's yeah. got a plan. This is part of the plan and the, and God's got a plan for you as well. And you're part of the plan and whatever happens, it's going to be all right. That's not an option open to me because I don't believe that. And my members don't believe that. Mm. And so the story that we tell in order to give people hope and a sense of agency has to be different. And I do think actually that element of agency is turning out to be very important because as we were discussing with the core values, human agency, our responsibility for the world that we want to create, is central to humanism. And I think this situation makes people feel like we don't have a lot of agency. There's nothing that most of us can do, literally. And so trying to craft a narrative about this that helps our members feel that their lack of action their choice to stay at home is in fact a positive ethical action that not doing things is doing exactly the right thing. That is a difficult and slightly unusual story to have to tell, but I think it's the sort of story that I'm gravitating towards to try and help my humanists feel good. I almost called them a flock there. They would hate if they heard me call them a flock. They never want to think of themselves. My humanist community, the, the community I'm very proud and privileged to serve, um, uh, to help them feel like things are going to be not, if not okay, that we're going to go, come through it as a community and there'll be something on the other side. That's what I'm grappling with right now as, as a humanist clergy person. I am so grateful um, because I can really feel through this conversation for the first time the central importance of agency inside of humanism and how how maybe that does relate to many other religions. Religion and faith gives people such a feeling of an ability to take comfort in knowing that there is a way to predict or understand the unknown. Is that a is that a, a healthy assessment? Yes, I think it's exactly right. I think that central role of agency in humanistic thought, I think that's incredibly important, specifically human agency, our responsibility for ourselves and for the planet that we inhabit. That's really central to humanist thought. And also you said um, about understanding the situation we're in. And I do think that is something traditional religions often offer is a kind of er narrative that people can fit into that doesn't just tell people the mechanics of what's going on, but helps individual people feel part of a story that's bigger than themselves, that has a place that it's going to. And very often uh, people who are not religious don't really feel that they're part of a story bigger than themselves. And I see it as a major responsibility of humanist clergy like myself to try and tell 
that story because really if we think about it in the right way we are all part of many things that are much bigger than ourselves we're part of the human family and that means a lot we're a particular sort of evolved organism in humanist eyes and we have certain similarities based on that that are very profound and i think that one of the most striking and for me hopeful things that is coming out of this terrible time we're living through is the recognition of our human similarity. Right now, everybody across the world, pretty much, is having a similar set of experiences. Yeah. Everyone, when this is over, is going to remember living through it, regardless of where they live on the planet. And this will be a touchstone for us that we'll be able to call upon. And I love seeing people from all over the world, the videos of people singing out of their windows and the videos of people doing silly TikTok dances and all sorts of creative things that people are doing that because of our modern technology we can see from wherever we are and participate in i'm a huge fan of the nintendo game animal crossing and you can visit people's islands from all over the world and there's tons of wonderful screenshots of people doing that so in a sense this is this experience that we're living through at once can be seen if you frame it in the right way as reminding us of many fundamental principles of the humanist tradition our common humanity the fact that we live on one planet subject to the whims of nature i think we're all feeling very powerfully that we are subject to the whims of nature that we can't change that we don't have ultimate control over but also and this is central to that question of understanding the centrality of science is coming out to me as another sort of humanistic theme within the COVID-19 pandemic. The centrality of science for increasing our understanding of the world in which we live, that a source of strength for the human species is our reasoned engagement with nature. And so for humanists, this has always been the case that support of science and scientific institutions is not just academic. For us, it's a reflection of our core commitment to understanding the universe in which we live. But I think now we can see that it's literally life or death, that it makes the difference, the scientific analyses of the spread of the virus and whether we can develop a vaccine, etc. They will make the difference between the, the life or death of many, many people. And so I think there are ways to navigate, and I'm finding this conversation very useful because it's helping me clarify my own <laughs> ideas, but I think there are ways to navigate through this, drawing on the best values of the humanist tradition it's just one of the things that I feel sad about is that most people don't live in a city where there's even one humanist congregation, so no one is doing that for them, right? They don't have a person whose job it is, like me, to tell the humanist story of COVID-19. Mm. And uh, I guess that sounds a bit self-aggrandizing, like I'm trying to argue there should be millions of me all over the world. But, and I probably do believe that, But but actually what I'm trying to say is that I really wish I'm seeing so many clergy of many different religions go above and beyond in their efforts to serve their co-religionists right now. Mm -hmm. And it really hurts my heart that there are so few humanist professionals with the skills and resources to do the same for the millions and millions of humanists out there who have literally nowhere to turn to for the sorts of community that religious professionals are now providing. 
gosh, if only there were some sort of technology where you could speak and others could hear it later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people can actually join our Zoom meetings. We have on Sunday mornings at 11 a Zoom gathering. It's our equivalent of a Sunday service. There's no prayer or religious ritual. There's music and there's a talk and there's opening words from one of our members. And that's basically it. So it's very uh, it's kind of heightened secular. It's got some sort of artistic um, sense to it, but it's not religious in any way. But anyone can join that. And we've had people from all over the world joining us. One of the great joys of the last few weeks has been uh, seeing people from India and the UK and Australia join our programs. Because I think many people who are more secular minded, who are more humanistic in their outlook, they just don't have anywhere to go for this sort mm. of thing. And they don't really want to become religious just for the duration of a pandemic. You know, you don't want to give up your religious beliefs and intellectual integrity just for um this duration for a couple of months yeah you know i'm really glad you mentioned sunday service again because another of my favorite aspects of looking at why people why people do this thing called worship or gather or contemplate the mysteries but they need to do it together right they're right there is a part to it which is also deeply ritualistic and it's the it's the liturgies in some sense but it's also tell me about some of the rituals that end up emerging um i can see already that for instance sunday service is um is a time in a, in the, in the cycle of a week when people will reflect and that is part of a ritual that you can borrow even even the name church you know like that's that's it's meant as a as a signifier, right? So, do you have ritual that also you are missing right now? We are a community with a slightly distant relationship to ritual. When our founder created the first ethical society, he's a guy called Felix Adler. He was the son of a New York rabbi, but he wanted to create a congregation where everyone could attend, regardless of their religious beliefs, and. Because he wanted it to be universal in that way, he decided uh, there would be no religious rituals involved in the equivalent of services because he didn't want people to feel that they had just attended a service of a religion that was not theirs, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Because the Certainly. moment you add, add a candle, someone's like, oh, we don't do candles in my church back home. Now I'm not part of the community. So we tend to have very ritual light gatherings but if you do anything for a long enough period of time i was and, just gonna say yes. it's really hard to avoid them isn't it it's very hard to avoid them and their ethical societies have been around for 140 years the ethical society of st louis more than 130 years old and so we do have some of what people might consider rituals like there is a structure to our sunday gatherings we call them platform i don't know why that was the name chosen but that is what it is they have a, a given structure but i i do want to stress that one of the cool things about humanism as a tradition is that it's non-dogmatic mm. and it is open to change and so we can always do whatever we want really if we decide that we need to radically change the format of our Sunday gathering, we can totally do that. And there's no Pope of humanism to say no to us. Mm -hmm. And 
that is something that I think has been very valuable at a time like this when we're in the middle of a crisis. It's a very uncertain time. We, it's difficult to know exactly how best to do things that we have never done before, like online purely online gatherings so we have allowed ourselves maximum flexibility and said you know what if that thing we usually do doesn't work we're not going to do it anymore Mm -hmm. i have to say though we've maintained most of them and i think my favorite one which is kind of a ritual that i really appreciate is that every week a member of our sunday ethical education for kids program so one of the children in the community reads the core values those core values that i read some of earlier Ah, And that is always a lovely moment in person. It's particularly delightful when you get a younger kid to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just really charming. Um, and it's been very moving to see kids with their families at home reading those out just like we would do normally. And it really gives a sense that we're continuing a tradition that we haven't actually stopped. I mean, one of the things that I always say when I talk to people about what we're doing is our building is closed, our community is open. Mm -hmm. And that really gives a sense that having a, a kid read the core values, that we are continuing to gather in the same way. And I think that feeling of continuity has been very important for our members to have a sense of psychological safety at this time. I have to now start to reconsider what my definition of ritual is. And it's now beginning to include everything from, oh, I don't know, the letterhead that you use to write, you know, like basic correspondence all the way to what happens when you go to the same building every time. Really interesting to start puzzling that when you do. So I guess just my parting thought is what what will it look like at Platform on the Sunday when you all get to return together and see each other again, occupy the same space again. You know, I think about that a lot. I think about what it's going to be like when we get together again for the first time, particularly because we are pretty convinced, the leadership at the Ethical Society of St. Louis at least, that it's going to be quite some time, that restrictions on many other activities will lift before restrictions on large public gatherings. And I don't think that we're going to be meeting again in person for some months yet. That's my suspicion. That's what we're planning for anyway, just Mm. in case. And so, because the last thing I would want to do is say, yay, restrictions have been lifted. Everyone come back to the Ethical Society and then a bunch of our older members get ill. I mean, that is just a horrifying concept. And so I believe, and I think many clergy believe that this is going to go on for quite some Mm. time. And I think that, well, the, We'll have to have a party. We'll have to do something special. It can't just be a regular Sunday. We'll have to come up with something that really speaks to the importance of our physical connection and our proximity to each other. And I don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. We've just started the process of trying to put a plan in place to encourage people to come back. So we're thinking about the sort of messaging. This is the behind the scenes view of being a clergy. So we're thinking about, well, what marketing campaign do we need to do to encourage people to get back? You know, that's the sort of things you have to think about. You've got to try and get people back into the habit of it. But I remember I've been a leader at the Ethical Society of St. Louis for the past six years. Yeah. And I remember the first Sunday after the 
presidential election, the past presidential election. <laughs> and there were hundreds and hundreds of people, including many, many people who don't usually attend. And our congregation is incredibly liberal in terms of its politics. Not that we ever would endorse a political candidate, but, mm -hmm. you know, religious values and philosophical values have political outgrowths and the political outgrowths of our values tend to be very, very liberal. And so I think people understood they could come to our place and many people would be feeling the same sense of shock and dismay that a lot of people around the country, particularly in liberal religious traditions, were feeling. And it was a sense, there was a palpable sense that people needed to be there, that they needed to be together with other people who broadly shared their vision of what human community should look like because they had a shock to the system, mm. realizing that many people didn't share anything like that same vision, or at least that's how they felt at the time. And I think it's going to be similar when we come back from this, uh, a felt need to reconnect with each other and to reaffirm what's most important about human life, our relationships with each other and our highest values. Okay, I'm going to throw out a just a what-if scenario at you. We move through the next three months. It's longer than anybody expects. It's shorter than the worst case scenario. And there's a moment in, uh, in September when everybody feels like it's okay to come out of the woodwork and begin to congregate again. And it's a great party. It's fantastic. The food is magnificent. And then a year later, we're all moved to think about how great it was that time that we all got to get back together again. So we have an anniversary party just to celebrate that moment when we got back together again. And right there, right there, you have developed your first religious holiday. That's a really great idea. We should have that. There should be a... a a regathering day or something. I don't. I don't know. A togetherness day. We should. Uh, one of my great f feelings of envy regarding other religious traditions. I don't often envy other religious traditions, but I do envy their holidays. We don't have any holidays. We have festivals that we celebrate uh, throughout the year, but we don't get any time off work for them or anything. <laughs> so it would be nice to be able to convince everybody to recognize a humanistic holiday for once. <laughs> Mr. James Croft, thank you so much for joining us on Beliefs. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it myself. Our guest was James Croft, Outreach Director for the Ethical Society of St. Louis. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer with production assistance from Jonathan Smith. The music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.